Good morning. I bring you greetings from TGP Wardville. I'm thankful to Kurt Isles for preaching there in my stead so that I could be with you guys today. Um, If you get a chance, go on to the Podbean uh, website and listen to that. I know that it's going to be really fantastic. He's preaching on the very last eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where we learn of death being swallowed up in victory. And he says, death, where is your sting? Um, and that's, that's going to be a, a wonderful message. I'm excited to listen to it. I know he's going to do a wonderful job. Uh, I'm thankful to Glenn for inviting me and our elders at Wardville for uh, letting me come here. Uh, while I'm thinking about it, uh, we're having an evening of worship on November the 5th. And Kevin Williams wanted me to make sure to let you know that we're having an evening of worship November 5th. West, you are invited. I think he's going to ask some of the, the band from West to play in that as well. I'm not sure uh, if he's done that yet or not, but he was talking about it. Uh, it starts at 6 in our building at TGP Wardville, November the 5th. So go ahead and write that down or get your phone out and put it in your calendar. If I see you with your phone out, uh, I'll just assume that you are doing that and not launching cartoon birds toward cartoon pigs. Um, it, is, it is a great privilege and responsibility to share the word of the Lord with you this morning. It's one I don't take lightly. And I pray, I have been praying, that it will bear a lot of fruit for us. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. <coughs> Excuse me. I believe the main thing that we need to see today from this text is that Jesus is God's wisdom and he should amaze us. Think about the, the, the wisest person that you know. The wisest person. I, stop thinking about Glenn, everybody. He's not it. Not, not by a long shot. The wisest person you know. What are some characteristics? Just run over in your mind some things you've heard him say or, or, or ways that you've seen them live that, that make them wise, that, that make them seem like, you know, that's a wise person. You, you, you think those, that, those things about those people for a reason. And so I want you to get that in your mind and think about it. <clears throat> because what we see, uh, I'm actually going to turn to Matthew 12 to share this with you. <clears throat> what we see in, in our text this morning is, is Jesus is not only a wise man, There are certain characteristics that we can draw out of this text this morning in Matthew 22 that that teach us not only is Jesus wise, Jesus is God's wisdom. He is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And uh, like I said, uh, for for this, just to help us see this, it says, The queen of this meant with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So the queen comes to hear Solomon's wisdom. And she's amazed. She's blown away by the wisdom that Solomon has and how he he runs and administrates his kingdom, the things that he says, and even the way that he treats his servants. She's so impressed with his wisdom. And so Jesus is condemning the Pharisees because he's saying, the queen of the south, that person is going to rise up and condemn you guys because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm greater than Solomon. I'm wiser than Solomon. And so today what we're going to see in our brief time is in Matthew 22. 
certain characteristics about Jesus that, that we could again say, he's not just a wise person, he is wisdom. So if you would, stand with me. We're going to read Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22 together. And I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible today. This, there's one word in this. It's, it's very similar to the ESV, but there's one word that they translate that I, that I think is more accurate. And so I've chosen to use this translation this morning. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You do not care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this time that you have given us together to sing your word and to hear your word. I pray that you would give us the grace to sit under your word today, to let the wisdom of God personified, embodied in Jesus, teach us. I pray that he would attract us to him. And that as a byproduct of knowing the one who is the wisdom of God, our lives would overflow with this same wisdom. And so God, we thank you. I pray that you would give us, uh, by your Holy Spirit, the ability to be amazed at what we see as true of Jesus today. And we pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. You can be seated. The first thing that we see, this is not from any particular set of verses. I'm not going logically through and trying to draw out these these points like I usually do. I'm I'm just going to talk about things that I notice about Jesus and I hope to bring some verses in. The first thing we see is that Jesus fears God more than he fears man. This is what makes Jesus the wisdom of God. He fears God more than he fears man. So we see this uh, by the Pharisees' testimony and Jesus' own truth-telling in his ministry. What we, what we start with in, in verse 15 is a trap being set for Christ. And so when we read verse 16... In light of verse 15, all that we can say is these people are trying to flatter Jesus for some reason. They want to trap him in his words, so they develop a a question to test him, and they want to trap him in what he's saying. But the Pharisees, in doing this, in in their flattery that they don't really mean or they don't really believe or... um, what, what they're doing is hoping to use it again. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. What they're wanting to do, they take this form of flattery and they want to use it against Jesus. That word 
that, that says you don't show partiality. Uh, in the ESV, if you're, if you're reading the ESV, you'll notice it says swayed by appearances. The, the actual original language is going to read something like you don't look at people's faces. He says, you, we know that you are true. You teach the way of God truthfully and you don't look at people's faces. In other words... Jesus' message did not change because of a fear of who might be listening. He always spoke the truth of God because he feared God more than man. And so even in trying to attack him and trap him, the Pharisees actually proclaim a great truth about Jesus that he fears God more than man. In his own ministry, Jesus also bears witness to the fact that he fears God more than man. And so what we see in this story and what we see in numerous accounts throughout the Gospels is that rather than validating the authority of the Pharisees, Jesus often exposed their hypocrisy. Even in our own story, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Read what he says. Why are you testing me, hypocrites? In verse 18, when when he perceives their malicious intent. If you look back, uh, just a, just the chapter before this, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, it's called the parable of the vineyard, or the Lord's vineyard, or the landowner. Um, Jesus speaks a parable against the Pharisees, and this is what he says in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Jesus is in the business of exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But it's not just them. His fear of the Lord caused him to speak truth to religious leaders rather than stroke their egos. He also, though, tells other people, the truth. You think about John 4, the woman at the well. He calls her out. He says, you're right in saying that you, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. He tells the truth to her. In John 8, the woman that's caught in adultery that the Pharisees want to stone. He says, go and sin no more. So he tells her the truth about her condition. Jesus' truth-telling in his ministry shows us that he fears God more than man. And uh, a really funny uh, story happens in, I think it's Matthew 16, when Jesus calls Peter Satan. He tells the truth, no matter who's listening. Jesus always tells the truth. All he ever spoke was truth, no matter, no matter the consequences. And this is because he feared God. Jesus ate with sinners. He sought out the wayward and he loved the broken. But his goal was never to join them in their sin or leave them in their sin. He always did these things to call them out of their sin. So even what we see today, in some ways, Jesus is calling these people out of their sin. Because he fears God and he wants them to fear God the way that he does. So there's a biblical link between the fear of God and wisdom. So I want to point out the well-established biblical connection between the fear of the Lord and wisdom. I'm going to do that by using two verses from the Psalms, but I want to read a list of these verses that you could go back and look at later. You can look in Job 28, 28. 
We're going to look at Psalm 111.10. You can look at Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, and Isaiah 33.6. And that's just a smattering of the verses that deal with the fear of the Lord and its connection to wisdom. But here's what Psalm 111 verse 10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if it's the beginning of wisdom, we need to ask ourselves, what is then the fear of the Lord so that we can begin to have wisdom? What's the fear of the Lord? I believe it's a disposition of our hearts in which God is everything to us. His opinion is is what matters most. It's of deepest significance to us. We care primarily about pleasing God. Our deepest loyalty and obedience are reserved for God. I believe that for so many of us, We lose our sense of identity in Christ. And then we give way to the fear of man. It shows up in what we say, what we do, and how we approach relationships. This is the first thing that demonstrates to our desperate hearts how beautiful Jesus is for us. You see, he wasn't like us. Because maybe when I just read that list of things... Ways the fear of man shows up in your life. I could, I could name 10 or 15 ways that for me the fear of man shows up. Sometimes I speak when I shouldn't because I want people to think that I'm funny or smart or spiritual. And sometimes I don't speak when I should. And both of those are the fear of man because I want someone's approval. I could list a ton of ways that fear of man shows up in my own life. But all of that I believe is an identity issue primarily. When I'm not believing that That who I am in Christ is the most important thing about me. But here's hope for us. Because Jesus wasn't like us. He never wavered like we do. And not only did he not waver. But he died in our place to set us free from sinful fear of man. By giving us a new identity. Jesus purchased The eternal approval of God for you. And that is the most satisfying identity that you could ever receive. See, what matters most about you, child of God, is that the one whose opinion counts most has adopted you and called you beloved. Your new identity is unassailable. If you know Christ. No man or circumstance can threaten it. No praise or reward can surpass it. And so because of that, let's ask the Spirit to help us rest in God's approval. To let that identity be what we act out of. And so I believe... If we could turn back to Psalm 111, actually into 112. So why Psalm 112, 1, right on the heels of what we just read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 112 says, hallelujah, happy, happy is the person who fears the Lord. Your translation may say, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. 
taking great delight in his commandments. If you jump down to verse 6, he says, He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look and triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. These things can only be true of us if we fear God more than man and more than anything else. We have to be radically committed to God, understanding that the most important thing about me is that I'm a child of God. And that colors everything that I do, everything that I say, every relationship that I pursue. That matters most. Happy is the one who fears the Lord. Because their identity is settled. And in all seasons, they're unshaken, full of confident assurance and delighting in Christ. No one can take that away from you. They can take your house. A fire can take your house. Matter of fact, just yesterday... No one's house was was taken by a fire. But I drove down my street and there was a wildfire that had started in the woods right across from my neighbor's house. How easily could that have come and taken my house away? In an instant. But the one thing that no one can ever take from me, though they take my very life, is the fear of the Lord. My new identity in Christ. That he won for me. The approval of God the Father, the ruler of the universe, the fashioner of the world, has called me a child of his own. And he's called me beloved. That's unassailable. Jesus is the wisdom of God because he fears God above all. The second thing that we see about Jesus in this text, is that Jesus does not give in to manipulation. He will not be manipulated. You see, first of all, he sees through attempts to manipulate him. Look at verse 18. It says, Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? These men seek to weaponize his fear of the Lord. So they say, yes, we know that you fear the Lord and you don't respect man's opinion. But what they want to do in asking him this question is they want to weaponize his fear of the Lord against him. They go on record by saying, we love that you don't choose sides. Now tell us, whose side are you really on? You see, if he answers yes... To this question of should we pay taxes to Caesar, is it lawful? He's going to lose the applause of the masses. He is going to be a Jewish sellout who feared Rome rather than stood up for the downtrodden and oppressed people. But if he says no, the Romans will arrest him for sedition and make an example of him. And if he says, I don't know, he's going to look weak, like a man who fears upsetting anybody, just a fence straddler. 
And so they really believed, these men really believed that they had forced him, they had manipulated him into a no-win situation here. But with God, there is no such thing as a no-win situation. You see, Jesus never gives the slightest hint of being intimidated. You have the religious elites, the ruling class, and common folk surrounding him and interrogating him. And he leads with hypocrites. Uh, I believe if you check the footnotes of your Bible, there's a word there. It just says like a little star, baller. Because <laughs> that's just what Jesus did. He was never intimidated. Remember this though too. Uh, Jesus was perfect. So even in saying this, he did it with the love of God and neighbor firmly in view. Having seen right through this attempt to manipulate and trap them, he calls them out and tells them what they need to hear. Even the Pharisees, here's what you need to hear. You're testing God, you hypocrites. This is a grace-filled rebuke to these men. And so not only does he see through it, he turns the tables on them. So even in his reply to their question, he doesn't allow himself to be trapped by their fleshly reasoning. His answer is breathtaking because he both evades the trap and answers the question. Full of the authority of God himself. He is completely in control of this interaction. There's not a moment where Jesus was not in control, even as they think they're going to control him and manipulate him into giving the answer that they hope he will. So this is a great word for us. The other day I was speaking with my parents on FaceTime on my phone at bath time for the kids, not our, that's not how that works. Um, our, our girls were bathing and you know that's just a time, uh, if, you, if you have small kids you understand this, that's, that's a time that you have them contained and, you, and they will like sit and you could like let the grandparents see them. My, grand, my, my grandparents, my parents live in uh, South Carolina. They're about 12 hours away. And so that's, that's a, a, a great grace to be able to talk to them on FaceTime. But uh, any other time they're running around not wanting to talk. But in the bathtub, they're at least contained. And so we were talking to them on FaceTime. It was ready to get out and I just was telling my parents, hey, we got a new bathrobe for Eliza, our three-year-old. Uh, and so, of course, as the dad that I am, I wanted her to try it on so I could be proud of how cute she is in this and so that my parents can see how cute my child is in this bathrobe. She, like a three-year-old, didn't want to put it on. But I wanted my parents to see my cute child in her cute bathrobe. So I decided I would make her put it on. But not, not in the way that, like, I'm telling you to do this, you're going to do it because I'm your parent, you're the child, I win. I decided that I would just say, that's okay. I'll let Annie, our one-year-old, wear it. And she'll show him how cute. Because, y'all, as cute as that three-year-old is in that bathrobe, the one-year-old in the bathrobe, way cuter because it's like huge on her. And she like waddles around. Like, it's, it's precious. It's adorable. So what I did is I said, okay, that's fine. Don't worry about it, Liza. I'll just let Annie wear it. Well, you know the rest. My three-year-old got that look in her eye. She snatched the robe out, on, out of my hand and put it on as fast as she could. And she walked around so proud of her 
bathrobe for Granite and Pops. That's exactly what I wanted from her. Could it be that your struggle isn't that you fear man, but that you use man to get what you want? Because let's call what I did and what we do, let's call it what it is. It's manipulation. And it's being an active source of temptation for another person to worship you rather than worshiping God. You'll use fear, guilt, greed, or some other vice to control people, to lure them into doing or saying whatever you want. This happens in business. It happens in marriages. It happens in parenting. It happens in the church. In that instance, with my daughter... I had to repent of that sin because I realized that I actively led and invited my daughter, my three-year-old, into sin, into fear and envy. It was almost immediate, the realization of what I had just done to manipulate her into doing what I wanted her to do. Actively leading her into fear and envy. The exact way I don't want her to live her life. I want to invite you, if that's you this morning, to repent of this form of sin and this illusion of control and ask for grace to fight it. Because whenever we try to manipulate others, we are inviting someone else to sin so that we can achieve our desired outcomes. But Jesus turns the tables. On these men. And let's find out how. Why are you testing me hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. When they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's they said to him. So he begins by just asking for the coin. And then asking a question. A simple question. That he knows the answer to. He knows what they're going to say. And then he brings in a whole new concept to blow the situation up. The third thing that we uh, are going to see about Jesus is that he delights in doing God's will. Jesus is wisdom, and so he delights in doing God's will. So what I want to do for the rest of the time this morning is to focus on his response. Jesus' response after that question that he asks them. So he asks to hold a coin which is a denarius, and you, your footnote actually really, this is legitimate now, your footnote really may say like a, day, a day's wage for a common worker. That's what a denarius is. Uh, and that, that one denarius, so one day's wage, was, was generally, uh, is, is generally what's thought to be that tax. So it's, it's literally they would pay this one coin every year, one time. It's, it's not a huge amount of money to pay Caesar. But you can imagine how Jews who thought that God is supposed to be their king and their ruler, how much they hated it when the pagan Romans came and took their money from them. Um, And so this coin has an image of Tiberius Caesar on one side and an inscription on the other. And there are a number of different phrases that would be written on it, but they all boil down to basically declaring the divinity of Caesar. And so there's some irony even in him 
receiving this coin into his hand, the, the actual son of God, looking at a coin that declares the emperor to be the divine son of God. But he asks this question, whose, whose icon, whose image is this? And this is, this is the word that I was talking about that the CSB translates as image, where I believe the ESV translates it likeness. And I believe that, uh, that the word image is, is closer to what he's really asking about. And I, and I have a reason for that that I want to give in just a moment. But he says, whose image and whose inscription is this? It's obvious. It's, it's Caesar's. It's his image. And it's saying that Caesar is the son of the divine Augustus, the divine emperor. But his response to what they say about it being Caesar's raises the stakes for everybody involved. It says in verse 21, Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. His, his words translate quite literally, Render therefore that which is of Caesar to Caesar, and that which is of God to God. The image of Caesar is on the coin, so he, Caesar, has a legitimate claim on that money. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He continues by saying, that just as the coin bears the image of Caesar, and Caesar has legitimate claim on him, so you, everyone who's listening, everyone with an earshot of Jesus, so you bear the image of God. And therefore, God has a legitimate claim on you. So this is why what he says is of such great importance. And we often miss that. But he boils it down to this idea of image. The one whose image is imprinted on something owns that thing. And so for Jesus, this means that they owe him their whole selves. They owe to God their whole selves, their love, their obedience, and their lives. They are responsible to live for God. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the crowds, everybody. In a very real sense, Jesus is calling his hearers to repent and live for and with God. Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I want to point out something interesting Jesus could have said. Uh, as I thought about all of the possibilities of what Jesus could have said and what, what he didn't say, one thing that he could have said uh, that would be similar to this is, oh, just don't worry about that, just worship God. Just, just live a lifestyle of worship and don't worry about these little trivial, menial, worldly things. But he didn't say that. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so what I take away from that is that the trivial things matter to God. The daily grind of life matters to God. It's not just this, oh, pie in the sky, my mind's in the clouds kind of thing. It's daily walking out of this truth. This wisdom of God is intensely Eminently practical. Jesus did not skirt around the political issue. His answer shows us that even the most trivial things in our lives can be worshipped to God when properly motivated 
or sin against him when neglected. Even something as simple as paying taxes can be done to worship God in his kingdom. The little things matter to God. And as his image bearers, we are accountable to him for every decision, word, thought, and deed. So he establishes a legitimate authority that, um, that the government has. And, and he establishes the legitimacy of this tax in some ways. It's not unreasonable. You're not asking for half of your year's wage. It's one day's wage. And it's his inscription that's on it. Give it back to him. But God's image is imprinted upon you. And he's calling you to give him your whole self. And so what he does is he takes those trivial matters and he places them in the context of worship, of delighting in God, and of doing God's will. I mean, if I could word all that we've said differently, I would just say Jesus fully delighted in God's will. Not just in the hearing and speaking of it, but in the obedience to it, in the doing of God's will. He delighted in God's will. And that's good news. It's good news for us that Jesus delighted in God's will. Why is it good news? Because we didn't. We don't sometimes delight in God's will. If you look back in Genesis 3, what we find is that at the first sin or, or after the first sin, we actually lost the ability to desire God, to hear his voice and to obey him. The image of God that we just talked about was marred at the fall. And we began, instead of delighting in God's will, to rebel against God's will. We needed someone to stand in our place. We needed someone to delight in God's will for us in every way that we hadn't and don't. And so I think we can turn our attention to just one prayer that Jesus prayed and one phrase that he spoke. If you turn four chapters over to Matthew chapter 26, he prays this one prayer, this one wise prayer of self-denial in Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed that the father's will would be done over his own will. He delighted in the father's will, even though it would cost him everything. Jesus chose the path of suffering because it was God's will. He elected to endure the cross because it would please his Father. And if you turn over to John 4, you'll see this as well. After he's been talking to the woman at the well, his disciples come back. In verse 31, it says, In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. Because they know he hasn't had any food that day. He's been talking to this woman at the well. He's intentionally sought out this woman at the well, had a conversation with her. His disciples come back, and they're like, eat something. You're, you're hungry. 
And it says, but he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? They're like, did he have like a Larabar that we didn't know about? Like, what's going on? And, and Jesus says this in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus delighted in God's will, even the path of suffering, the path of the cross, because it was God's will. You see, we deserved that cross because of our rebellion to his will. But Jesus died on that cross in obedience to God's will. And because his sacrifice was all satisfying to God, he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus walked out of the tomb. This is something we should never get over. This should animate our worship. It should animate our daily lives. The fact that every morning when you wake up, let's just, can, can we just think about this? Can we just do this? Every morning when we wake up, when you arise out of sleep, can you just remember that Jesus rose from the dead? And that you look forward to doing that one day. You're going to fall asleep like permanently one day, but then Jesus is going to like resurrect your body. Like so because he's alive, you're going to live as well forever. So every morning you wake up, just man, Jesus is alive. Like remind yourself when you come out of your sleep in the morning, even if you're groggy and you like hate life in the morning, just remember Jesus is alive. Like I can whatever happens this day, I can meet because Jesus is alive. And he lives. And not only is he alive, he stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, praying for you. You say, what's Jesus doing right now? He's praying for his people. Jesus is alive. Salvation was accomplished by the wisdom of God. That's why it's good news. That Jesus is the wisdom of God who delighted to do God's will. And this is our hope. This is the hope of the whole world. Anyone who would be saved by God must hear and believe this. It's that very work of salvation that gives us new hearts capable of delighting in God against whom we formerly rebelled. So I have a question. Are you beholding this beauty, beauty like we see in this text, are you beholding the wisdom of God daily? Are you beholding Christ daily? Are you allowing it to form your soul and shape your desires and inform your decisions? I pray that you will see the wisdom of God on display in this story, even more so on the cross, and then that it will begin to manifest itself in your life each day. Jesus is the wisdom of God because he fears God more than man. He does not give in to manipulation. And he delights in the Father's will. To close, I want to draw out one point from, uh, one final point from this text. In this text, we can see the priorities of the Pharisees and Jesus on display. And it tells us something about how they relate to God. The Pharisees, you see, when they ask this question, is it lawful? They're asking about the Mosaic law. Is it lawful? Because obviously for the Romans it's lawful for them to pay 
taxes. They've imposed the tax. So he's not asking from a political standpoint. They're asking from a religious standpoint. They're asking about a matter of the law. You see, they believe their adherence to the law commends them to God. But Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, relates to God differently, personally, intimately. Jesus wasn't against the law. He wasn't a lawbreaker. He actually was the law keeper. But he spoke from a direct knowledge and experience of God that the Pharisees didn't have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My invitation this morning is a simple one. Be amazed at Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Let's delight in Him. Let's boast in Him. Don't trust your own righteousness, your own righteous deeds to commend you to God, but rather trust the one who is wisdom from God, who is your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption. So He began your salvation. That's righteousness. He is seeing your salvation through to completion. That's sanctification. And one day... At the day of redemption, he will redeem you fully. It's 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. He is the wisdom of God. So let's celebrate the wisdom of God. Let's be amazed at this. And let's, every morning when we wake up and we think, Jesus is alive. In light of that, let's pray, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's delight in God's will. And in all things, let's seek to know Christ. Because as we come to know the one who is God's wisdom more and more, wise actions and wise words and wise thoughts are just going to flow out of us. Because you are getting to know personally God's wisdom. That's available to you through the Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer for all of us. So let's pray. Father, we uh, are grateful for this word. We're thankful for uh, Christ, who is your very wisdom, who is our salvation, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. I pray that our boasts would not be in works of the law that we could do, so that we would get patted on the back, but I pray that our boasting would be in the one who fully fulfilled your will, even though it meant the cross for him. We thank you for the salvation that comes through repentance and faith. And so I pray that even as we sing this song and respond to you, as we go throughout the rest of this day, God, that that you would continue to convict our hearts of places that we don't fear you rightly, we don't see you rightly, we don't remember who we are and whose we are. We fear man or we manipulate others. And I pray that we would become more and more like Jesus. Not not fearing man, but fearing God. And not not manipulating or, or being given to manipulation. And I pray that we would delight in you. 
You be everything to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.